Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The philosophy of sex. Welcome to the philosophy of sex, long play. I'm your host, Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Glory holes have long been associated with gay culture as a great way to maintain anonymity in contexts where gay sex is illegal or socially unacceptable. They come from a history of persecution. However, they're certainly not a new thing. There is evidence glory holes existed in ancient Greece, Egypt and Japan before being exported to Europe in the 1700s. Given their history of concealment, it shouldn't come as any surprise that the Vatican City has one of the largest numbers of glory holes per capita. Glory holes are a fantastic example of how social ideas influence human sexual behaviour. So when I read about a glory hole art project here in Melbourne, I had to dig deeper. At first thought, a glory hole might seem transactional and relatively void of intimacy. But today's guest, Emil Kanita, demonstrates how wildly incorrect that assumption is. Emil is a Filipino-Australian artist, sex worker and HIV-positive health educator who in 2021 began operating a glory hole as part of their arts practice. And for making a remarkable difference in supporting those with HIV, Emil was recently named Community Champion by Living Positive Victoria. With a background in social sciences, Emil has been posting Polaroid photos of hookup lovers on Instagram for several years. And following a dream about owning a glory hole, Emil decided to make the dream a reality. Since then, they've written about their experiences with the lovers who have visited the hole. Emile's work sits delicately at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, art, and unashamedly being a slut. Their work is subversive, clever, and sexy, which makes it my favourite art project I've encountered in a long time. Deeply sensitive and intelligent, Emile is the embodiment of how I believe we would all treat our lovers in an ideal world, with respect, kindness, and of course, skill. Emil gives me the lowdown on how the glory hole works. We discuss navigating gender and power dynamics in sex, being a giving lover, and how engaging in alternative sexual practices can support sexual healing. Emil offers so much wisdom. No matter your gender or sexual orientation, there are so many takeaways in this episode on how to be a generous lover. I wanted to start by asking you to tell your story. How did you get to the point that you are at now? So I thought I'd introduce myself beforehand. So for um, any of your listeners who've never heard of me before, um, my name's Emil and my pronouns are he, she, and they, an HIV positive sex worker who's based in Melbourne, also known as NAM. 
And in my day job, I work through the HIV positive community here and trying to support people who are newly diagnosed with, newly diagnosed or just coming to terms with their HIV diagnosis. So I do a lot of that during the day. And then at night, I suck cock. <laughs> it's a pretty good, pretty good kind of combo. So my story, my practice as an artist came about through therapy. When I was younger, sadly, I was raped. I've had a lot of sexual trauma growing up that then developed PTSD. And part of my therapy through this was uh, actually learning to like freeform writing. My psychologist asked me to just write about my experiences. And because sex was something that I was quite curious about for a while because of my experiences, um, I've decided to use sex essentially as my subject. Um, so over the years, I think it's been about five years now, what I've been doing um, through my lover's consent is to basically take a photo of them through a Polaroid and write about our experiences and reflect on it. So that's been ongoing. So basically I've been writing about my lovers for about, yeah, four or five years now. Um, and a lot of it I base online because part of what I do on my social media is basically invite the um, viewers into the story. So, you know, ask them about what they're going through when they're faced with these situations or let them through even the process of what it feels like to hook up with someone. Mm-hmm. And this basically developed on for a few years. It's basically quite consistently around the same kind of topic. But it was through COVID last year. And I guess one of the beautiful things with being on lockdown is that you're forced to just deal with whatever bullshit that you still have to go through. And in the beginning of the year, like this memory of me being raped kept on popping up in my head. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I thought, because I'm like, oh, I've talked to my psychologist about this now. Like, I, But really, I just mentioned it. I'm like, hey, I got raped when I was a kid, blank. But then in my head, I thought, I'm like, oh, that's me talking about it. Because mm-hmm. then one during one of our sessions, I'm like, hey, like, I know, I feel like I've talked to you about this before, but this co- keeps coming up in my mind. And sometimes like, you know, it just feels like I need to have this conversation. And he was like, oh, you've actually never talked to me about this. You've said this, but you never actually expanded more onto it. And for me, I don't really want to discuss it until I know when you're ready. So I guess I'm like, oh, I guess I'm ready then. (laughs) (laughs) And that was basically the beginning of where my practice is kind of developed to now. Because as part of the process, there's this thing called EMDR. I don't know if you've heard of this treatment before. No, I haven't. Um, but it's it's a treatment that they use for people who have PTSD. It's called eye, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. But as you're going through the whole treatment itself, um, basically what it does, it does it unlocks all of these parts of your your subconscious that you've basically locked up because your brain has basically been trying to protect you. Because if you don't have any tools yet to kind of deal with a particular trauma, your brain's kind of response to that is basically lock it away Mm. and not process it, which basically informs your behavior. And so through this EMDR treatment, he was basically unlocking all of this trauma that I've locked up from from myself since I was nine. Mm. And one of the effects of this treatment is that at night when you go to sleep, you just have constant nightmares. So for about a whole week, I was just having constant nightmares Mm. and it was getting quite exhausting at one point, but towards the end of this kind of week of process to that weekend, because I started that Monday, by that Friday, 
I just had this really vivid dream about having a glory hole. <laughs> you know, it was just kind of like, oh my God, what is this? What happened in the dream? Can you remember the dream? Like specific details it, about the dream? N- no, but there was an image of a glory hole and that it was something that I desired. Mm. That was the emotion. It was like a glory hole is there in my mind and I sense a, a deep sense of desire towards it. So I literally woke up. It was like 6 a.m. I just needed to have it. Like, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, when you're sleeping on it and you're like, oh, I'll think about it. I'll think I might buy it tomorrow. And then you go to the next day and then go online shopping and click on and buy the product. It felt like that. I'm like, okay, I need to have this now. I just had this <laughs> weird, uncontrollable urge to own a glory hole, um, which is a very interesting conversation when you do kind of, I'm like, okay, I can't wait to talk about my psych about this next time. Yeah. Um <laughs> This is some good content, you know, for this. For sure. Um, but, I mean, you know, because of this kind of, it's like a desperate need to have this glory hole. I basically hit up a couple of my friends of mine who were queer tradies and basically told them, I'm like, hey, I know it's 7 a.m. in the morning. Good morning. What do you think about building a glory hole for me today? And as you probably could already guess the response, they were like, yeah, cool. Let's go to Budding soon. So, Within 24 hours of this thing, it, I've basically been able to manifest through the help of my friends a glory hole at home. Um, and as you could, as I was telling you about my practice and how it is, basically just felt natural for me to be like, well, okay, if this is now a part of my sexuality, this is now a part of my sex life, it just felt so natural for me to also kind of write about my experiences meeting the men who access the glory hole. And what I've been also experiencing and the growth that I've been having since having it. Mm. And so how long would you say you'd been writing about your experiences with partners prior to having the glory hole? It would have been about four or five years now. Yeah. So that's, that's a long, yeah. long practice over a long period. It's good friends mm. who, uh, who obliged you and made the glory hole on such short notice. That's the kind of friends you want around, I think. Right. And I'm still friends with them too, which is great. (laughs) And so since having the glory hole, how has that changed your relationship to your sexuality? That's a really good question. It expanded it more. I think um, I remember this first conversation I had with my site because I was just like, what the fuck? Why do I have a glory hole at home? What has this treatment done? I'm just like not taking any responsibility. You know how comedic it is. Like, what the hell? Like, why is there a glory hole at home? Who did this? Like, what? You know? And he, because he was like, how was the experience? Because I was like, well, surprisingly, I didn't find it as anxiety inducing. Because I thought I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be a hole. I'm going to let this total stranger into my home. And they're never going to know anything about me. And likewise towards them. But then it's just going to happen and we're just going to have sex through the hole. And surprisingly, I still remember that first guy who I had over and yeah, it was, I was calm. I was like, okay, this is happening. This is good. This is hot. It was playful. That was the thing. It was so playful. And um, for the first time in my life, I didn't have to navigate sexual racism. I didn't have to think about, oh, how would someone treat me if they know I'm Asian? In all these things that you have to navigate as a person of color, because you're either fetishized or people are disgusted by you. And on second part, as a a person living with HIV, 
I don't have to have these conversations about, you know, like stigmatized questions, like, are you clean or, you know, anything that would just suddenly kind of basically fuel anyone's HIV stigma. Cause like, it's, you just imagine that like, you know, as an HIV positive person, as a person of color, who's Asian in a male gay culture, it's really rough. It's really tough. Um, And it really fucks with your self-esteem. Mm. um and your sense of value with yourself because even the porn that we have access to barely even show our bodies as being sexual beings yeah you know yeah so there's a lot of that internalization that i've been going through but through the glory hole to be honest like for the first time in my life i i jokingly said to my psychologist i'm like is this how it feels like to be white and negative <laughs> you know is this the theoretical space for it because i am yeah. I, you know i am not my body anymore i am not mm. who so much of my identity is in so many ways is detached to me because now this person sees me as a whole. There's a lot to unpack in that dynamic, right? And totally. <laughs> and, and your and your relationship to it. I mean, how long after you first got the whole did you invite the first person into your house? Uh literally as soon as my friend who finished the whole like sewed it on. Because <laughs> he because you, know, you don't I mess mean, around. <laughs> no, I was because you know, I was like, I needed to get this done. Like, okay, this is a deep desire that needs to happen. It needs to happen. And I'm just one of those people that's so tor- so turbo that if, if I have my eye on something, it just needs to happen. Yeah. And yeah, so within basically, I think so. He left in that afternoon. He gave me the sandpaper in the end. He's like, okay, sand it to make sure no one cuts themselves. I'm like, cool. And as soon as I sanded it, that was it. I'm like, cool. Let's... So, no so, paint you know, job, to... nothing. No, no. And I, I kind of liked it for the minimalism. Like I yeah. really, from a design perspective, like I like how minimal the object is because it's literally a plank in a hole. <laughs> and I love how the act in itself is literally you just a piece of genital and me my mouth or whatever yeah and that's it i kind of it echoes the genre i thought so i'm like mm. okay let's keep it as that yeah. and then let's go with it <laughs> yeah yeah what you were speaking to just before around it giving you a freedom from sort of sexual racism and conversations around mm-hmm. your hiv status in your instagram bio you have this really really beautiful quote and it's that is the eternal folly of man to be chasing after the sweet flesh without realizing that is simply a pretty cover for the bones. Yes. What does that, well, first of all, who is the quote from? And what does that quote sort of mean to you in relation to your work and having the glory hole? Yes. It's by Neil Gaiman. I put his initials in there, but because of the text limitations, I couldn't put his full name. Mm. Um, it's from his book, American Gods. Uh, I actually haven't read any of his work, but when I found this quote, mm. it just really sp- speak to me. Mm. Um, because there's, it's true. Like, you know, I think there's something about desire and sex that can be so blinding sometimes. But then because of that kind of intoxication that it does give to us, it can really blind us from the intimacy the warmth, the human aspect of sex. And in my practice, which is why I write about my lovers, like, you know, my stories about them are essentially my love letters to them. Mm. Um, It's because I do want to see the people that we hook up with, the one night stands that we have 
as really beautiful encounters because we're trusting a stranger into ourselves. And I think that, you know, that's such a beautiful thing about our culture, about hookup culture, that, you know, like we have, we're very, very trusting people. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like I'm more intimate or someone who's, who I've just, you know, fucked or been with for the past hour is I feel closer to than some friends that I've known for a year or a few months or someone that I spent more time with. It just really cuts through deep. Um, and yeah, I think that's where the, the quote really kind of resonates with me. And for me too, it's a reminder to be like, Oh, I may be a horny bitch 24 <laughs> seven, but <laughs> it's really about just being able to connect with humans that I really enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. And I, I want to revisit, a lot of those themes that you've just spoken to in some of yeah. the later questions, because I think there is a lot of real juice to unpack there. But I wanted to ask you about the whole. <laughs> yes. Obviously, you've taken us through sort of what led to the creation of it. But mm. can you give us in as explicit a detail as you are open to giving an idea of mm. how it works, how people find you? Yeah, take us through it. So with the hull, I guess it's quite straightforward. Uh, I have my ads on sites like Double List, which is basically like the Craigslist in Australia. Um, I have a profile on Snapchat. I have it on Kick. I have it on dating sites like Field because it's a kink-based kind of dating site. Basically like mediums that would accept kinks and fetishes. Obviously, I can't be on Tinder, Hinge, Bumble, any of those typical dating sites because God, you know, God help us if we're kinky people. <laughs> and through that, basically, I have my ad and they're, they're very thorough. I'm like, hey, I'm a trans person. This is, I have a glory hole. I'm looking for these types of people to basically entertain. Please just respect my space, my time, and me. And if we click through our conversations, I'll send you my address. And then once you're here, I'll send you the instructions. Once you're up here, you just basically buzz yourself up. Once you're inside the door, please take off your shoes. That's like my number one rule. And then they just come through the hole and insert themselves. So it could be literally as a minimal act. Like we don't even have to have any introductions. We don't have any have any conversations. Yeah. And you just come in there and insert yourself and just trust that the other person is going to do what you expect it to do. And then you just walk out and go. So it's really pulled back. Mm. it's a shitload of trust <laughs> it's yeah it's a shitload of it, that's the thing it's a shitload of trust and from someone who's been raped at nine years old who's found trusting people really really hard because my body back then before going through this therapy was so anxious in bed like mm. I would try and have sex and you know I said I've been doing this practice for four or five years before even the glory hole yeah. I sense that my body was so tense it held it was like bracing for impact even as sex was happening because my body wasn't able to mourn and process mm. what happened to it when I was nine. Mm. So having the glory hole was essentially a radical step for me psychologically to really trust another person again. Mm. And in some ways, my body is still protected because it's actually not my body, but a piece of plank, you yeah. know? Yeah. You've got a safety wall. Yeah, I have a safety wall. But in so many ways, it allowed me to trust people again. It really helped me heal a lot. Mm. And how often would you interact with people without the whole? 
would you strictly use the hole with people? Are there people you would sort of sleep with otherwise outside of using the hole? And has that process kind of changed as you've become more comfortable with what you're doing? Yes, it has. So it's taken a while. So for quite some time, I didn't even want to show my body. Mm. Like, you know, because it was one of those things too. Like, you know, I was experiencing body dysmorphia, gender dysmorphia. Oh my God, the list. And I was just <laughs> like, oh, I cannot. Like, you know, because it's really in so many ways as emancipating as it is to not have to deal with that. Taking it off is basically putting those things under a microscope too. Yeah. Yeah. So when those, when I have had like, you know, amazing, it's like, it's amazing when you do reduce someone into just a body, for example, mm. or to like a piece of their body, you really get off um, or try and connect with someone through the whole, just by their energy mm. and just the true chemistry, what you have with the other person. And I have, I've, I've met people who have, the, I just have amazing chemistry with. Mm. And it's through that experience that they're like, okay, you know what? I want to have more. Yeah. And at first I've allowed them to play without the hole, but they have to be fully blindfolded the whole time. So they yeah. can't even see me. Yeah. And I've had amazing sexual experiences through that as well. Mm. And it was amazing because like, you know, I had all of these like um, predominantly cis straight men telling me how sexy I am as they touch my body without even seeing me. Yeah. You know, that this, the, the fact that I'm like, Oh my God, like what is sexy? Yeah. You know, what is sexy if I'm literally just a texture to you mm. that this could be sexy? So for me to, to then detach all of these things that I thought would define sexiness, that would define sexual capital and basically have it be disassembled in front of me, really opened my eyes to what erotica truly is or what it can be. Mm. That it, ha- it can be the creativity, it's the personality, it's the energy it's yeah. the connection that you have with this other person. Mm. Um, and over time, like, yeah, like if now I kind of, because I through that experience, I met a lover too who was really into sissy play and it was a really great way for me. So sissy play is basically when you kind of like hyper-feminize yourself. Yeah. And through that, I've been able to really explore my gender in such a fun and playful and explorative way mm. and really lean into my femininity because as growing up in gay culture, um, particularly here in Australia, there's such misogyny in it that this femininity is is frowned upon or looked down on. And it was hard to, for me, it was really hard for me to accept my femininity. Um, and I found so much of that misogyny I've internalized. But through mm-hmm. Sissy Play, I've been able to lean in on that and then just own my femininity. And it's been amazing because I've been meeting so many beautiful, gentle, kinky men who were really into it, who made me feel so valid and accepted mm. and so sexually liberated in so many ways. So yeah, it's it's kind of developed now into um, me exploring other parts of my sexuality. It was, mm. it started with a whole. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a really beautiful way that you kind of describe the trajectory of that, because I, you know, I mm. imagine in the mainstream imagination, you mention a glory hole and people think that yes. it's going to be this incredibly transactional impersonal process yes but it's interesting that what you've found is that the connection you feel with another person comes even through a hole (laughs) Mm, I know I know this is one of those things that really shocked me through it and I suppose it echoes my quote earlier on or Neil Gaiman's quote anywhere that you know it's 
there's so much more to it to sex and mm. there's a whole lot of trust and a whole lot of warmth and and connection and beauty in there mm. and you just mentioned obviously that a lot of the men who come to see you are sort of cis straight mm. identifying men can yeah. you take us through a bit of a demography of who comes to the hole? Yes. So um, because I did, um, my uni background is in social sciences. So it felt really natural for me to kind of, for the first 100, just the first 124 men that I did have over, I decided to kind of collect their data from just their self-reporting, how they identify their profiles, what sort of porn they watch what they respond to me is when they do, when I do ask them about these things. And surprisingly, they're very, very generous about this sort of information. More than 95% of the men who've been through the whole, the first 124 were straight identifying men. I found less gay by pan men asked the whole in the beginning. Yeah, which I thought was really surprising because I thought I was, um, I was going to get a bit more from my community but the mm. fact that I got so much more from the straight community was quite an eye-opener for me but also not a surprise because I've seen other glory hole owners before and kind of understood you know because I'm quite curious about sexuality in general and mm. seen that this seems to be a recurring theme so I'm glad that my little kind of body of work reinforces this theory in so many ways yeah it is really interesting I mean mm. what's your gut instinct I guess is it that there's sort of a component of their sexuality that they're wanting to explore in terms of some form of queerness or fluidity? Or do you think it's more about the ease of the social exchange through the glory hole? What do you think are kind of sort of the underlying motives for a lot of these sort of cis straight men? Uh, well, some of what you said now basically answers that question. There's such a plurality of intentions. And as mm -hmm. part of my work, if you go on my Instagram account, I have a highlighter called the man of the whole. Mm -hmm. And I basically capture the quotes that they say to me, like some kind of memorable quotes that they say during our interaction or while they're on their way or before. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like a common theme is that because, you know, I've had people who like, oh, this is just easy. There's no talking. I can just get off, you know. Yeah. Two, they're like, oh, they're very curious about what it even is, or they're just really intrigued. Some of them, it's their bucket list. Yeah. Some of them, they're in <laughs> their, um, yeah, I love that. You know, I love to be that. I'm like, yay, I, I helped someone achieve that in their life. Yeah. <laughs> I've helped facilitated that, right? Uh, some of them are in really unhappy relationships where they don't feel any form of sexual satisfaction. And really just finding a, a sense of connection and intimacy again, where they feel that they can be anonymous. I've had guys who are cheating on their partners because they're like sexually dissatisfied. Mm. But those five ones are the key common themes that I keep on coming across. In one of your previous interviews, you stated that sort of straight men may be dealing with a very different sexual economy mm. than their queer and gay counterparts. Yeah. Can you sort of unpack what you mean by that? Because I think it's a really interesting statement. Yeah, because I think, um, I don't know if you've had a friend of yours or you yourself have looked at a, an app, for example, like Grindr, where it's predominantly designed for yeah. sex. You can just tap in there, say what you're looking for. And if you really want it, you can find someone to have sex with in five, 10 minutes like that. 
Mm-hmm. I know that it can be like that for Tinder at times, but then there's still a lot of performance when it comes to having sex, right? Or it comes to kind of yeah. trying to make sex happen. Especially I know for a lot of the femme friends that I know, a lot of the, the women that I have in my life and talking, listening to them talk about men wanting to have sex, men can just be incredibly arrogant, abrasive, uh, demanding, entitled, rude, all of these things that just, they just don't seem to know how to communicate to people. (laughs) And like, you know, and I think because I am literally just a whole, it kind of Mm. gets rid of all of that. They don't, we don't have to play games. You don't have to act all smart to me. You don't have to charm me or anything. Although showing a personality is really helpful because, but because of our text conversations, I'm really just getting off on how someone texts me, you know, and sometimes it's like less than 10 lines. Like, hi, how are you going? But if I could sense respect, if I could sense, you know, like a a sense of sexual confidence, a sense of sexual curiosity and openness, I'm like, yeah, cool, come over. Mm. And in so many ways, it's kind of like, it relieves us both of anything else. Because I don't need to know Mm. you. We don't have to think about, talk about anything that you're going through, but we can still have this amazing release that you're trying to find from another person, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think about, um, in our, our last season, we did one episode that looked, um, sort of at aspects of, of hookup culture, Mm. I guess. And we spoke to a woman called Lisa Wade, who's a sociologist who specifically studies hookup culture in American university campuses. And I asked her a question around, why there was a difference in hookup culture for particularly queer and gay men versus sort of cisgendered people, et cetera. And her take was that a lot of that culture had actually arisen out of oppression Mm. and being in a situation historically where you were forced to get married to women and have children. Mm. And so you had to meet people very discreetly and, efficiently I guess Mm. would you say that that is an accurate interpretation sort of in your experience I think part of it you could probably attribute to that but I think also because so much of our identity has been reduced to sex you know like yes homosexual you are a homosexual (laughs) that's who you are is basically because you have sex with the same gender it's like cool but there's actually Mm. so much more to homosexuality um, but I think because of the sexual trauma that particularly the gay community too has experienced in the Western um, cultures, particularly around HIV and AIDS. So there's this also theme mm-hmm. of like, not only has sex been demonized, criminalized, and um, has literally been a death sentence to a lot of people in our communities. Mm-hmm. We're now coming at a point in our lives where there's a lot of reclamation as well. And there's a lot of ownership through that. But also I think... Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, sex, like any drug it can be, it can easily be addictive. And in so many ways, it's a way for people to escape. Yeah. You know, and yeah. the queer community has experienced, is experiencing, still dealing with so much trauma, like myself and other peers that I know. And, you know, I'm not saying this generally, but I know how sex is used sometimes to escape and to heal as well. Mm. Um, but it's definitely, it has a plurality to it. Yeah. It's all of these different things at once, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's it's never just 
a simple explanation to to any of these questions. But I wanted to ask you sort of, you've also mentioned this sort of interesting de-othering of um, cis, cisgendered straight men yes. through your experience of having the whole. Yes. Can you talk me through when that kind of started to happen, what it felt like and, and what it's been like as you've, as you've grown? I'm one of those queer folks who live, breathe and work queer. My community is queer. My chosen family is queer. My work mm. is quite queer. So I would have days sometimes where I would not even talk to a straight person. And because of that, too, when you're so deep in the queerness of it all, sometimes you kind of be like, you know, you just kind of like, oh, my God, straight people are boring. Like you just have all of these prejudice about what straight people are like. And especially when you see like this contrast to like very like, you know, to queerness, which is like hyper masculine Aussie, like, you know, when you don't even understand what they're saying, kind of Aussie men or the one that don't even know how to like express their emotions or where you talk to them, it feels like, oh my God, we're talking about the weather, like kind of conversations. It mm. feels, if I guess for me, it kind of reminds me of talking to my dad, where it's like, oh God, yeah. it's never going to be a conversation, <laughs> but I guess we're just talking now. It's just words coming out of our mouth kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. That's kind of my relationship with cis straight men for a very, very, very long time. And because, yeah, like I've never really had particularly great experiences around them. And through this experience where, because of so much of my new participants, audience, lovers, visitors, whatever you call them, have does identify as straight cis-identifying men, because I'm accessing them through sex, then I'm able to see this different side of them that I never get to see where I'm just meeting them in person. And they, they you know, because in person they can see me, I'm like very queer. So they already have their sense of, you know, way of behaving around me, the same way I code switch as well when I'm around them. But because they don't get to see, I particularly see me here, I, I get to see this part of themselves, which is quite, you know, the, the gentle, the vulnerable, the, the nervous and scared, um, all of these things that I never really thought of a straight cis man would have because I just never see that. Mm. I rarely see that exploratory playful side to them you know mm. and as I've met so many it's been such an eye-opener because I'm like oh my god like there's so much more likeness to us the moment we have have a conversation and sure like you know around emotional intelligence it's that's a big kind of still work in progress for a lot of them of just like even having a conversation be like what did you think of that experience and they're like oh yeah that's good thanks you know I was like great <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah totally totally <laughs> like it was so for a while I kind of like try and chip in and really try to have kind of open them up and try to kind of like let them realize like let's say space like this is you know because I know for a lot of these people who've experienced this for the first time I am their first time into the kink world it's been beautiful being present with so many of these men to so then question them like oh well now I want to experience this because then they'd be like, oh, do you have a penis, right? I want to know what a feels, mm-hmm. penis feels like in my hand. Can I touch yours? Like those things, like curiosity, you know, like that yeah. really naivety that I think we don't often allow ourselves to have when we reach a certain age in our lives. And it was just yeah. so nice to be able to not only facilitate that with myself, but also to have that 
with my lovers. So it's been great. Like, you know, I've had mm. people who only started with a whole, I never even got to talk to at first, to barely even hear anything about them, to now playing without mm. the whole, laying in bed, you know, telling stories about one another, getting to actually know them. So it's nice to then see this kind of liberation happen in them, mm. even though a lot of them still mm. identify as um, cis straight men. It, this mm. for me kind of reinforces a lot of the theory that does come out around straightness is that straightness is less about a sexuality, but more of a culture, you know? Yeah. Cause like with straightness is like a perfect example of this is like, you know, if you identify as straight because that's the culture that you're part of, you know, you live in a very, very straight community, the lives, the behavior that you do, the events that you go to are very, very straight. But then on the side, mm. you happen to have sex with men. You know, or every now and again mm. you have sex with men or men who identify. So it it yeah, because because this informs essentially how even health promotion works. So now when we do health promotion, we don't even say gay men, we just say we're you know trying to do this project for men who have sex with men. Because we realize that the mm-hmm. moment you introduce identity markers like gay, bi, pen, or any of that, because of the stigma attached to it, a lot of straight identifying men who may happen to have sex with men automatically attach to that. They're like, oh no, we're not gay, but I'd be open to this. <laughs> you know, there's such yeah. we have we still have such rampant homophobia in this country that sadly yeah. the yes vote cannot fix. This has been kind of a very interesting way to also see how prevalent homophobia still is, but also how yeah. so much more fluid a lot of straight people are. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's the thing that that I find interesting and it makes me happy. Same. <laughs> uh, it makes me really happy that they're, you know, even if it is through the fact that they're having a negative experience with a partner or they're not getting what they want out of life that it's it's encouraging to me that there are people out there that are taking the steps to try different things and experiment, even if it's something that they're keeping to themselves at that point in time. Mm. How has your relationship with the concept of masculinity changed through this process? Because, I mean, what you're describing there is a, a pretty interesting interplay between sort of the cultural forces that are shaping how people present themselves to the world mm. versus what they actually know to be true about themselves. Mm. You know, I think in an ideal world, there wouldn't be a disconnect between those two things, but there clearly still is in Australia, as there is in, in most parts of the world. So, yeah, how, how has it changed how you've, you've viewed masculinity, your own sense of your own masculinity, all of these things? Well, for one, I've started to also identify the masculinity in men. Because for a mm. while, like, you know, when I'm trying to lean into so much more of my femininity, I was starting to reject so many masculine aspects about me. But then I started to even question, I'm like, well, what is actually feminine? And what is masculine? Yeah. You know, what are these things? Because we have, I guess, like, when I say a shine masculinity, there's these, like, classic symbols of, like, hard yakka shorts, the steel boots, <laughs> you know, the floral, the smell of dust, yeah. links. Rexona, like there's that it has such a, a spitting image of a shy and masculinity through these engagements with these men i've been able to actually make that feel more familiar for me because before back then it felt mm. just alien 
Yeah. You know? And now it's so funny, like, mm-hmm. even with my kind of day drag, I incorporate a lot of kind of typically masculine clothes, but kind of make it camp in a way. So I've kind of reclaimed it in yeah. some way and have fun with it. Like, I have a lot of plural in my outfits yeah. now. Because it's in it's yeah. my little kind of <laughs> nod of just like yeah, there's this immenseness in me that I'm also highlighting, yeah. even though I'm, I'm I look like a faggot when you see me in the street, you know. But I'm like <laughs> wearing fluoro, and I love it sometimes because the trader would re- like notice me because I'm basically kind of coding all of their colors towards them, but I just present yeah. very very differently. It's been a really beautiful way to to celebrate masculinity and to highlight this part of it, which I think. Yeah, we don't see enough of sometimes or talk about often. Um, because mm. when when I do for me, like when I do kind of just think about masculinity, I just see rough, um, closed off, cold, insensitive, aggressive, so many negative connotations around masculinity. Um, but through this experience, I've been able to soften and round that out. Mm. You know, I've I've often wondered to what extent this sort of fairly binary distinction between masculine and feminine, how how useful is it really? In what ways does it serve us? And I think it's in a lot of senses it's probably done more harm than good and, mm-hmm. and more often added fuel to fire. I agree with you. I mean, it's uh through lockdown as well, it's been one of those moments for me to really explore my gender. And I remember just hearing constantly, like, you know, I you always say, you hear people like, oh, gender is a spectrum, gender is fluid. But I'm like, okay, well, if that's what we say about gender, then why can't I embody that? You know, mm. if that is what, how we describe gender, why can I not be gender fluid? So it's really open up to me what it means to be gender fluid, what it is to have a trans experience by basically exploring my gender. And it's been, I mean, it's been fun. It's been scary. It's cost me a few trips to psychology but it's it's a process <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and yeah and it's an ever-changing thing as well right totally so, you know you could you could think you've turned a corner and then you know there's another blind corner that you weren't quite expecting right oh my god oh my god <laughs> totally um no but it's been fun it's just like doing a collage of out of yourself <laughs> mm, yeah yeah exactly exactly <laughs> And so I wanted to ask you, for you, what does it mean to be a whole? <laughs> um, yeah, just a whole, sir. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> so when I think about being the whole, it reminds me of this artwork by Lucia Fontana in 1960 titled Spatial Concept Waiting, and it's a canvas, and there's a hole in the middle. There's a slit there. Someone cut through it. And I can see just the darkness in there being so scary because you're like, it's the unknown. You don't know what's going on. It acts, it looks really violent. But then when you peer through it and pierce through it, it's unlimited because you're like, oh, anything can happen behind the hole now. But also it's actually quite beautiful. That little intervention there, that cut, it's like, ew, it's actually quite beautiful to look at. And this is something that I've found through the hole because I am literally the void. And through that mm-hmm. void, I could be unlimited. I can be whoever I want to be. And but then I don't have to rely so much to drag. I don't have to attach certain things to me. I could literally just be my voice and my mind. So who I am as a mm-hmm. person could be anyone I want to be behind that hole. So I find so much freedom with it. 
it, in so many ways, as much as it feels like such a reduction of my identity and, you know, we're so against reducing ourselves. I think by being able to reduce myself first, I've able to expand myself into this limitless idea of who I can be because yeah, through the whole, I am unlimited, you know, it's a really beautiful point around reductiveness. Mm. But I think, yeah, you have to almost, as you say, be able to limit who you are to be able to expand who you are. You have to be able to see yourself in a reduced form to be able to expand out into other understandings of yourself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like I said, like I was a whole, but then I had these men telling me how sexy I am, how beautiful I am, mm. how good I am. Like All of these things that I thought you needed to see. You needed to have a different variable to expand on, to you know, to rely on, to be told these things. But then I'm literally just a whole to a person and then still hearing this feedback. I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> is this the matrix? You know, it's just. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh. Yeah. Like, I think we've touched on sort of the stuff around your experience of sexual racism mm. and, and it being a way to free yourself from a lot of those experiences. But what has, I guess, having the whole taught you about other people's sexuality and relationship to sex? Yeah, in terms of sexuality, to be honest, I can't imagine myself to be the other person on, on the other side of the hole. I am not the person who would go to someone, a stranger's home, put my penis inside a hole and just trust that the other person's going to look after. Like, I, I can't. Like, I cannot put myself in that situation. But the fact that these mm. men can, I'm like, it's amazing for me the level of submission mm. and trust another person is willing to give to a stranger. Mm. And that's that's something that directly counters, you know, the the kind of masculine narrative. And that's what I think is um, interesting about the power dynamics involved in a glory hole is that you can argue on both sides that there's an equal amount of control and submission mm -hmm. on the part of both parties. Yes. There's a huge amount of control and a huge amount of trust for everyone involved. And I think that it's almost an interesting metaphor because all sex is like that. It's just whether we're willing to to recognize it or not. And to what extent do we apply cultural layers over top of that that mean that we can't recognize that yes. when always that is true, that there is equal equal power in any dynamic between two people. Yes. Yes. What I did find fascinating, though, was a lot of these men that I have in my life that have come through the glory hole have been incredibly submissive. I, mm. even though I'm the whole, if I tell them something, nine out of 10, <laughs> they will do it. Yeah. You know, I'd be like, I want you to, even with some of my art direction, creating my practice and be like, okay, I want you to walk on that side, stand there yeah, and zip it like this, buckle up your pants like this, all of that. I could order them around the room and they will just say yes. And for me, that was mm. so, again, bizarre and amazing and fascinating seeing what I envisioned mm. to be the symbols of a shy and masculinity, which I've seen as stoic um, beings to suddenly being this malleable thing to be like, Oh yeah, mm. I'll do that. Yep. 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 Yeah. You know, do you, do you think that there's something around, and I'm sure this is the case in 
for some people, but not for all, that it's it's an opportunity to relinquish control in a culture that demands that they be so controlled all of the time? I think so. I think I think a part of it is that, but also like, you know, I've had this really fascinating conversation with one of the tradies that I actually had over. And he was like, oh, it's just mm-hmm. nice to actually let go and just not have to think. You know, it's like an escape, escape to this, Mm. monotonous what he was describing a monotonous day for him or something that's especially doing like you know manual labor constantly Mm. it was nice that it's a different way of basically expressing and exploring himself because here it's it really being at the glory hole when you're so reduced of your senses and everything else your imagination and creativity really is demanded of you Mm. you know and particularly from a sexual kind of point of view too. So it's, it, it, I think for a lot of them, they, I, they, they get a lot out of that. Mm. When they're in the hole, mm. on the other side of the hole, mm. do you have any kind of like porn or other stimulants? Yeah. So um, going, yeah, I do. So I normally, because I'm such a good host, <laughs> I have, uh, <laughs> I ask them if they have any porn requests that they want to have on. Some of them mm. do want to have some, some of them don't. Some of them just want to kind of rely on the voices that's happening within the hole. I have some cock rings here if they want to try it. I also have some mm-hmm. poppers because I know a lot of them have never used it before. <laughs> and I just want to introduce them to the magic and power of poppers. <laughs> and I'm evil because of that, because some of them are hooked now. Yeah, that would happen. They'd come over, they'd be like, do you have poppers? I'm like, babe, I have some, don't worry. <laughs> I've got you. Covered. I've got you covered. I've got some wipes here because you know a lot of these guys are coming from work sites, so I have wipes there. So yeah. they're quite pampered. You know, they even have like sparkling water mm. if they want to drink some water. Um, they, some yeah. men I've even offered my shower, so they can really freshen up. So they can come as they are, or they can really get ready and prepare if they want to. Sounds lovely. Yeah, it's nice. It's a really good. I think it's a really good glory <laughs> hole. I should actually start like asking them for like more of the environmental reviews because normally I just ask them how the, how good the blowjob is. They're like, how is the blowjob? Yeah. You know, um, but <laughs> I should actually ask them like, how's the, how's the place? How's the hosting? You know, put it on, yeah. put it on, um, what do you call it? What do you call that? Hostess what? with the mostest. Yeah. Put it on TripAdvisor. A, yeah. Put it on Airbnb. <laughs> short stays. <laughs> yeah. Very short stays. Yeah. <laughs> We kind of already touched on sort of talking about what you've learned about mm. consent and intimacy, but I wanted to ask not just about that in the context of the whole, but in the context of sharing your social experiences on social media mm. and in your writing about your experiences. Mm. It sounds like people have been pretty receptive to being included in your work. Yeah, in in a lot of ways, yes, but also no. I mean, I've had, I mean, counting now, I've had about 700, 700 plus visitors, visits to the yeah. glory hole. Over what period? Oh, my God. Eight months. Yeah, yeah. So, but only out of those 700, I've probably been able to share about 100. And then out of that 100, I've able to... Mm-hmm only write about maybe 20 or 30. So it's not a lot. It's actually not a lot that I can get from that. But because it's, I suppose, through social media, it's what you see. It kind of gives this impression that there's a lot of generosity. But because in reality, um, yeah, it's, it 
you know, a lot of these men are living extremely private lives. And a lot of the reason why they do come to the glory hole is because they can be anonymous. That is a pretty low percentage that are, that are willing to, to share. Yeah. How do you, I guess, protect people's anonymity and also, I guess, protect yourself in that, that scenario where you do have information about people that they would want to be kept held yeah. pretty closely, right? Well, so much of it is trust. And I think because yeah. the act and the medium itself already demands so much trust for one another, that is a beautiful foundation to the work. You know, a lot of these people come back. Most of the people I've had here, more than uh, more than half of them have come back and do return. Mm. And normally when I do start the writing process for people who have already come back, because they know what I'm about. And I tell them about my practice. I'd be like, hey, I write this thing. And I, you know, sometimes I tell them, like, this is how I used to promote as well, because I recently started my own kind of like OnlyFans page just to kind of support myself yeah. financially. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of conversation around that too. And I suppose for a lot of them too, because when I start talking about this work as art, they just kind of scratch their head or they're like, cool. You know, they're like, yeah, cool. It's like, you know, yeah, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, I don't get it. Totally. It's like, <laughs> oh, okay, cool. No worries. Just And no, it's, it's the most common response. Like, please just try and not show my whole tattoo. Don't show my face. Yeah. That Those are the things that really, you know, it's a very basic way of trying to cover someone's identity. Because even with the names, I don't really describe them or put their names in there. I will name you without any filter in my head what you said to me that resonated with me or I could remember or something memorable about mm. the experience, you know? I love the names that you come up with. They're great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's very kind of erotic because <laughs> I'm like, okay, this guy's a daddy yeah. and he's a welder and his, ca- his yeah. cock is like a, co- a can of coke. So I, co- I, co- I call him daddy coke can welder. Like, you know, that kind of, <laughs> so it kind of like goes like that. It's very fluid. Like I really... I try not to filter myself and I just want to, all right, what's my head's going to spit? That's your name. Mm. Um, so that's my way yeah. of contextualizing it. And even with the quotes, I I write it as verbatim as I can because I'm like, I really want to have your voice be a part of this because I think we don't really hear their voices in this context because again, they're just, we're just, they're just reduced to their cock. It's so cool. The way you write about it Thank and you. the way you share, because it's, it's this interesting thing where it's, you know, you could imagine someone stumbling across your Instagram page and, and you wouldn't necessarily go straight to thinking this is an art project. No. So, yeah, how have you found sort of the response in light of the fact that you have a different relationship to it than I guess how a lot of people would initially interpret it to be? That's been kind of I think one of the key things my practice has been trying to do is like to ask you to look beyond what I'm trying to show you right like yes this is me these are all the people that I've hooked up with these are all photos of them but I actually want to look have asked you to look further into that because there's so much Mm. more than these skin and bones in front of you right Mm. and surprisingly everyone's been really receptive I mean I've had one random really aggressive a message from someone who said that I was mm. um, I'm the reason why the why they would why people vote no for the same sex marriage or I'm the reason why you know there's so much diseases and all of that happening. Um, sadly, it was coming yeah. from a gay man. There was a lot of internalization mm. going on there, but 
Uh, most right. of the time I've had a really positive response. Most people, for me, the most surprising thing is that uh, the cis straight women are the people who engage with my work the most. Even more so than other members of the queer community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Voyeurs, I guess. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> probably, yeah. Um, it's really fascinating. I never thought that that would be my kind of main engaging May work my mm. main engagement is coming from but it's really nice to be able to kind of I guess yeah give you this voyeuristic side to queer sex but also show perhaps some of your lovers who have access to it mm. um yeah you know yeah I think for a lot of cis straight women it would be almost encouraging to see men being more vulnerable mm. and your work conveying a different side of, of masculinity could almost be appealing in, in that sense as, as well, I imagine. Yeah. I've had, I've had women who actually wrote to me, like, you know, after seeing the work, they've started to explore their sexuality with their partners a bit more and learn to kind of demand what they need and even ask their partners mm. what they're actually even into. Um, and that's so mm. beautiful. So it was like, okay, well, because even a lot of my friends, you know, acquaintances who, because I guess seeing me being kinky, kind of, if you know someone close to your life that you're like, oh, they're being kinky, I guess, what can I explore then that can be kinky? Yeah. What's kinky about me? And I found that kind of, mm. I guess, infectious effect of being slutty and kinky happening as well, <laughs> even among my peers, which is really nice. I've had I've had people yeah I've had people who message me to be like I actually went and found a glory hole and tried it because after seeing your work for quite some time now, or I want to start a glory hole now because of you, or I do this now, <laughs> which is just so beautiful. I'm like, great, this is the revolution we need. It's queer liberation is gonna start well, from a hole. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. But also I feel like like that's what good art should do, right? Like I think the interesting thing is that this is what a lot of art claims to be doing, but kind of isn't. And I think it's it's why I find this so interesting as a project, because I think it's very effective. Mm. Yeah, thank you. It's been um it's been a gift. I I never thought how much sharing my healing experience through sex mm. has resonated with so much more people than I thought. And the way that it's also opened themselves up to what other world we can actually have for ourselves, literally in our homes. And I think, you know, I was mm. telling this to you when, when during our email conversation prior to this interview that I'm like, like I, I remember coming across this line somewhere or a radio show saying being on lockdown is a perfect way to explore your kink and fetishes. And it's true because you're just at home. And you have yeah. to explore your body. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that people are allowing themselves to shake off a lot of that stigma around sexuality and sex that we unfortunately inher- inherited from, you know, centuries. Yeah. It leads into the next question I wanted to ask you, mm-hmm. which was around, I guess, the concept of, of generosity and and vulnerability. Because I think those two things are really at the core of a lot of what you're talking about mm-hmm. and and what do they really mean in in the context of sex for you one dot that's a really brilliant uh, line 
and question. Um, Thank you. It's something, I mean, those two things are something that I try and practice with every sexual encounter that I have. When I do have someone in my home, I treat them as I would treat someone who I would be dating or have loved. That's my number one rule when it comes to sex. It's like, I want to have sex with you like I would someone that I've loved. Because I, I mean, free my head, I, I prefer to people I have sex with as my lovers. Because I want them to know like this is the standard of sex, that there's intimacy, there's trust, there's a generosity, there's a safe space for it. You know, even though I know that I have that intentions, I know I've made mistakes. Um, there's been times where I misread someone, there's been times when someone made me feel unsafe, and vice versa. But those two things have been my main anchors when it comes to my sex life. I feel the, that the foundations to good sex is knowing that you're having sex to give pleasure to the other person. It's Good sex is a selfless act. And if the other person is matching that same energy, then you have great sex. You know, because yeah. if, you, if, if you're having sex with another person and you could sense that they're doing it because they just want to get off or fear pleasure for it's themselves, the it's the worst. <laughs> you feel so used. You feel like such yeah. a void in the end and you feel almost kind of, you feel even more like horny and angry, like hangry, you know? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Huh. it's different kind of hangry. Yeah, it's different kind of hangry. <laughs> so it's, yeah, I, I those two things for me are really what I try to practice with every sexual encounter that I have. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's a foundation. It's a really beautiful emancipatory sex emancipatory sex i like that (laughs) that's the glory hole right there (laughs) (laughs) you should paint it on the glory hole oh my god (laughs) emancipation with an arrow pointing to the hole (laughs) insert insert cock here to turn on kind of instead of a coin (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) yeah probably the final question that I wanted to ask you is has having the whole changed your experience of hookup culture? And I think what you were saying just before probably relates to it, where you're wanting to treat every lover as if there's someone that you care for very Mm. deeply, probably because they are someone that you care for very, very deeply, even if they are just a stranger, Mm. that's quite incongruent with a lot of the sort of norms around hookup sex has that, shifted for you or is this a a view and an approach that you've always had it's i I can't say that i've always had it um part of the reason why i started writing about my lovers is to actually put value to sex um because yeah like Mm -hmm. you were saying when it comes to the norms around hookup culture it's a transaction you know the, the words around it we're kind of objectifying and commercializing our bodies and our trust and intimacy with strangers and what I'm trying to create from that is a counter discourse to that idea of hookup culture. Because we've had such a negative connotation for me. And I'm like, no, hookup culture have, can have a lot of generosity, can have a lot of trust, can be safe, can be enriching, can be emancipatory. But it's really just a way of what lens you put over your sex life, right? Um, yeah. So it can be all of those things again. But 
it, it, it has so much beauty to it. And I hope if people recognize and see that more. Because, um, you know, imagine like everyone's just being so generous and lovely towards one another. Like it's just because, you know, and sometimes you've had sex with someone that's that level of intimacy already and closer that you're able to do. Like if everyone just fucked everyone, like maybe we'll have world <laughs> peace. Um, sorry, like I've just excluded asexuals there and people who haven't had sex. But, you know, like it just yeah. it would really, I think, deal with a lot of the tension people are going through and this mistrust people may be experiencing with strangers because for me like i said it really helped me trust people again Mm. and i think yeah not just between strangers but sort of between genders of all sorts and, and things like that i think i think it has pretty interesting equalizing potential yes despite being a a very very simple concept of, of generosity <laughs> i think uh well it, it, this actually reminds me of a recent lover that i had over um beautiful man and he said towards the end of it before he left he's like look back then i was quite conservative and didn't really treat my lovers very well but then as i got older and had a lot more sex and met so many different people um it doesn't even matter what the gender is for me sex is sex and it feels good it's good Mm. and i'm like you're right <laughs> you're right yeah yeah it doesn't need to be any more complicated than that does it no if it's fun it's fun it can be like that yeah i wanted to talk to you about being hiv positive mm-hmm. and feel like this the hiv is a whole nother episode potentially <laughs> and i and i i don't want it to be attack on at the no, end no, no. because it's obviously so much more than that but if you're happy to have sort of quick couple of questions asked about it, we can do that or we can save it for another time. Of course. Of course. <laughs> I think um, it's it's something I do try and do in my work constantly. And it's a theme that yeah. I try and explore and talk to other people about. So I'm very, very mm-hmm. happy to so thank you for yeah, giving space to it. No, no, of course. So if you could tell me a bit about your experience living as an HIV positive person, but also what your experience like has been working in a space supporting other HIV positive people through their journey of of being diagnosed and and working out what that means for their lives? So in terms of my experience being HIV positive, in so many ways, I feel very lucky to be diagnosed because I was diagnosed when I was 22 in Brisbane. And I feel really lucky that we're in a health system that's quite good. Like, you know, we have advanced treatment now. Um, people um, living with HIV, once they're on this treatment and it's only one pill a day, they become what they call undetectable, which mm-hmm. in clinical terms, basically, if something's undetectable, a bacteria or a virus is too low to ever be transmissible. So mm. now people living with HIV, once they're on effective treatment and it's managed, can just have very normal sex lives. And what I mean by that is like they can never transmit the virus anymore. They can have children. Yeah. It doesn't affect because the virus is not multiplying it anymore. Basically, you can maintain a very good health. I met someone mm-hmm. last year who was over 90 and living with HIV, you know, and wow. yeah, I know. And I'm like, God, he's still going. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, and then, you know, like I've come across many families uh, that are positive and negative and have children who are negative. It's like, so your life essentially is functionally normal. Aside from the fact that you just have to take a pill once a day, but now you can even take injections soon. So you don't even have to take the pill anymore. 
um, to basically right. manage your HIV diagnosis. So it's really changed a lot for me. And yeah, mm-hmm. I've, I've come at a point where in my life now where I feel very comfortable about my HIV, which is why I'm very open about it. Um, but in saying that as well, I don't also share it to all of my lovers because I know of HIV stigma and how much that still exists. And it's also a way of me protect, keeping myself safe. Because even though I know in the end of the day, the science is there, that there's zero chance of me ever transmitting it. But because of the attached stigma and trauma attached yeah. to HIV, it's a it's an instant repellent. Yeah, yeah. You know? And then, and then this is the kind of reductionism that I don't like. I am just reduced to an HIV positive person. But it's quite, I guess you could say interesting because I have this part of my life where I'm so outwardly HIV positive, but then through the glory hole, through my sex, largely of my sex life, I am not, mm. you know? Um, yeah. So yeah. these are the kind of two worlds that I'm, I'm balancing and navigating and Mm. yeah I think uh, I always parallel it a lot whenever I'm telling this to my clients when I'm teaching them or guiding them on how to share their status um, or let people into their HIV life I'm like well Mm. think of it the same way as coming out about your sexuality when you first was coming to terms with it you don't just say to everyone that you're gay right because you don't know how everyone Mm. else is going to behave Think of it the same way as yeah. saying as someone with their HIV positive. You don't just say it to everyone because you don't know how everyone's going to behave. But it's really about yeah, yeah. building that trust first, knowing that this is a person mm-hmm. that you can talk to. And then once you feel comfortable, share it. Because in the end of the day, you realize mm-hmm. how you identify in these things shouldn't really matter. But them knowing mm-hmm. this part about you means that you actually want them to see this side of you. And I think of HIV the same way. It's like, look, it literally won't make any difference to our engagement now, but I want you to know this about me because I want you to get to know this side of me and this, you know, part of my life that actually does impact me in some way um, because I want Mm -hmm. you in it. It, Sadly, there's still a lot of work when it comes to HIV education and sadly me just telling this isn't enough. We know Mm -hmm. already that knowledge alone isn't going to change someone's mind. And we we still need an emotional and cultural and psychological intervention to HIV stigma. And we don't have that yet. Mm. We don't have that mm. yet. What would you imagine that could look like or should look like, that intervention? Mm. Good question. I wish I had the answer to this. Um, mm. Because uh, I was like, fuck an HIV positive person, you know, just <laughs> then, then you know it's like try. everyone has to. Yeah, that's it. Like, do it, and then you know you're safe, and then you know you're like, oh wow, I it, yeah, undetectable works. People on HIV treatment doesn't get HIV, but getting tested, mm. getting tested regularly is one of them. Being able to face your own anxieties and stigma around HIV. You really got to do that work with yourself first, you know? It's mm-hmm. like the same thing with me through the glory hall and doing sissy play, exploring femininity. I then was able to uncover so much of this internalized misogyny that I had. It's the same thing with HIV where it's like, I'm going to go get tested because then all of this anxiety and fear I have about HIV is finally going to come up. And then, then I can face mm-hmm. with it. You know, like mm. in what parts of your life do you genuinely, do we allow ourselves to really face the things that we fear? Mm. And HIV is one of those things that Sally does ask us to, to face something that is 
scary for a lot of people. It's an unfortunate scenario where I guess there's an interpretation by the mainstream that it's not really an issue anymore. Yeah. Oh, I, for me, for a lot of the conversations that I am part of, they know that it's there, but they just, mm-hmm. um, and they still think that the reality of the 80s is still what's happening now, but there's just so many other things going on. You know, it's like a certain form of cancer and they're like, oh my God, cancer. It's like classic, oh my God, something's going to happen. But they're like, oh, what about these treatments that you never hear of? So it's kind of one of those things that unfortunately the trauma mm-hmm. is there and is imprinted itself in so many minds and that's what they think of. Yeah. Well, I imagine for a lot of people, they wouldn't necessarily even know the distinction between HIV and AIDS, right? No. The the education just wouldn't wouldn't really be there. No, sadly. And I think that really goes to show with the level of sexual health education or lack thereof that is happening in our schools, but also the way we've reduced sexual health to just diseases where sexual health is so much more. It's your sexuality, it's your gender. It's your kinks, mm. it's your relationship to your body and pleasure. But we're still, you know, we're still very much on our uh, volume one of sexual health is like, oh, yes, yeah, sexual health diseases, you know, which mm. is such a really. And even then, we're not, we're not even nailing that part of no, it. No, I know. Because even <laughs> when I, because I I was very, very lucky. Um, one of my previous roles was um, being in this testing clinics as an HIV positive person. And part of my job is actually telling the other person that I'm testing that I'm HIV positive. And that was amazing because I'm like testing them for HIV and I'm sitting across them and tell them I'm HIV positive and the shock on their faces because they have an imagination of what an HIV positive person looks like. Looks like. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, no, I'm still, and you know, I tell them I'm like, I'm still a slut. I still do all these things. <laughs> I'm still the same person as I was when I was HIV negative. Now I actually mm. feel more free and feel more alive because from what ha- society has taught us to be what HIV negative is, I'm a living example that I am not that. And that is so mm. much power. And in mm. so many ways, it's really helped a lot of the people that I've diagnosed realize that I'm like, oh, cool. It's amazing what your mind can actually make you feel about yourself. Mm. in the environment that you're in both negative and positive Mm. yes (laughs) yes lots of work to be done yes i think with your second question about helping people um through their diagnosis Mm. so like you said earlier on with my day job um i support a lot of people that are duly diagnosed or just coming to terms with their hiv diagnosis um a lot of the people that i'm talking to as well are migrants like me predominantly Asians too, because the highest proportion of people newly diagnosed now are people coming from overseas. And, you know, a lot of university students, a lot of visitors. um, And quite commonly, um, what we found is because this is normally the first environment where they do feel safe to get tested. Of course. Yeah. So because of that, then this is where they find out they have HIV. But then there's so many of these cultural factors that then comes up. But also because a lot of them as well are closeted or not even out about their sexuality from their home countries, it's sadly very common too that this reinforces the idea that they're being punished for being gay now they have HIV. So that logic, unfortunately, is very common as well. 
Um, and because of the financial connections that they do have, the support that they do have from their families, they're very scared to disclose their status to them because they thought they might be disowned. They might be like, oh, their family. And because of their family's knowledge around HIV as well, commonly very, very low, mm-hmm. there's an assumption that if you have it, you're going to die soon. So, you know, so we have yeah. to kind of yeah. grapple with a lot of intersectionalities from my work. But a lot of the focus mm-hmm. of what I'm doing right now is trying to help people feel connected again and be part of the community mm-hmm. and learn how to trust people again and be safe. Because most commonly, a lot of the how HIV gets transmitted, particularly for my community, is still through anal sex, through sex. So it's, mm-hmm. I guess, very similarly to my own journey. It's like I'm trying to help people trust being with strangers again to learn how to trust their bodies and feel safe in their own bodies. Mm. Because like, mm. you know, even though I'm saying to you like, yes, I'm undetectable, I can't transmit the virus anymore. I still talk to so many HIV positive people that don't feel that way because they're so scared. Yeah. You know, yeah. they've yeah. internalized yeah. that and, and really taken on board what the news articles and society has told them that there are dangers to society. Yes, it's very common. I, I meet people who don't have sex for, years i've met someone who had yeah. sex for 10 years since their diagnosis Whoa. yeah he just felt so unsafe and yeah. it was like it was really sad yeah it's interesting though because i mean there's complete synergy across all of the different components of of the work that you're doing mm. there really whether it's the hiv work the glory hole work or even what you're doing on social media sharing your experiences there and creating a, a community of people that are working towards trying to understand connection more. Yeah. It all comes together, right? Yeah. I feel, <laughs> um, I feel incredibly spoiled and lucky that I have a workplace, a community and a life that aligns so well with one another. So I feel like each of them are feeding off one another um, mm. constantly and the other informs the other a lot. And the fact that I'm able to ex- express it and even see this work as a work of art, I have so much gratitude. It's, mm. it's been such a beautiful life to have. I feel very, very lucky. A big thank you for listening to The Philosophy of Sex. And a big thank you to my guest, Emil. You can find Emil on Instagram at babydilfx. You won't regret following him. You can find us on Instagram at becoming.me. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Thanks to Sultan Fetcho, who edited this episode and wrote the music. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>